Red Leather, Yellow Leather. This is Steve McLaughlin. You're listening to the Steve McLaughlin Radio Hour. Uh, I'm coming to you from the other end of a very long soda straw. And this morning I'm, I'm thinking about the Beatles. I'm thinking about um, my wife and I were assembling Ikea uh, uh, Billy bookcases yesterday. One Billy bookcase after another lining an entire wall in our in our house. We just got a house three months ago. And uh, something reminded my wife of uh, of the Beatles. And the Beatles are, are well known as good music for babies. I think everyone I think everyone can agree. Uh, anyway, so we I put on a, a Beatles playlist, a sort of best of playlist. And and just like one song after another. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I listen to the Beatles relatively, not frequently, but once every year or two, I'll go back and like listen to all the albums and think about the Beatles for a couple weeks or, or a couple days. Um, anyhow, um, just playing through these songs, there was something uncanny about them. Like, it's not just familiarity. It's a, it's a feeling of inevitability. It's a feeling like these songs were. It's a feeling like these songs were not created, but discovered, in some way, like like that they were derived, like the the laws of uh, Euclidean geometry. Uh, it just they seem so fixed in some way, um, and it's hard to shake that feeling. I know it's absurd. Like I know it's not, you know, works of art. Uh, like Michelangelo, as a sculptor, didn't free his figures from the stone, uh, whether or not that that quote is attributed to him. But but the, the idea that you can look at the stone and the thing you're making is just inside there, and you need to all you need to do is put in the work to discover it and and uh, and release this great artistic work. Obviously, that's bullshit. But but it's, when you've lived with a song as long as what yesterday. Obladi, Oblada, literally every Beatles song. When you live with a song for that long, it just feels, um, it's like, it's, I, it's, it's hard to even put my finger on it or put it into words, but it's like those songs are embedded in me in the way that, in the way that language itself is. It, now, okay, I'm trying, let me think of a comparison because I don't get that feeling listening to the Velvet Underground. Like if I listen to the Velvet Underground, um, those are some of my very fa- very favorite and, and most played LPs of all time. You know those four Velvet Underground albums. Um, but it, but yeah, look, the difference probably is that I, I didn't get into the Velvet Underground until I was a teenager. Um, and the Beatles have been playing in my house. I mean, my dad is a, is one of these one of these big Beatles fans, um, and so those songs probably were playing at the time that I was as young as my daughter now, I mean, even younger, I mean, they probably were, they probably were just playing in the background so early and so frequently. It's the repetition, um, that they, they have become, (laughs) it's like any Beatles song might as well be the alphabet in the way that it, in the way that it makes me feel, not that it's like, that's a great song. It's just like, oh yeah, that's, that's obla di obla da. <laughs> like that's just like a 
a fact of the universe. I don't, I'm not sure. Look, I suspect I'm not alone in, in feeling this way. But it's just, I think, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had difficulty, <laughs> I had difficulty articulating it, which made me think somehow that it was, it was worth poking at. I feel, you know what, I feel the same way about Abba. My mom is a big Abba fan. And just take any Abba. I mean, then again, the Beatles and Abba are not representative of most culture, I must say. <laughs> but then again, why? You know, what is it about, like, like yes, Abba and, Beatle, and the Beatles were some of the greatest musical geniuses of all time. But it, it could have been so many other ways. There could have, you know, we could live in a world where Paul McCartney was never born, and we would still get along fine, you know. The culture would still be whatever, you know, the Beatles, let's just say the Beatles were wiped off the map. Well, look, it's, you can't do this kind of time travel because, because of influence among artists, but, but it's, it is hard to accept the arbitrariness of culture in that way. Like the, that it, I mean, forget about the Beatles. Think of the alphabet. You know, you have this, you have that alphabet song stuck so deeply in you. Uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, J, K, L, M, N, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. So it's not even the tune. It's the, it's the ordering. It's the sequence. And the, and just those syllables, those phonemes, one after another. Um, it's that thing. It's like a, it's like a starting point for, <laughs> it's like a very important text file in the operating system of, of your of your mind. Um, something that's really very fixed. But but yet, you know, if two of those letters had been inverted, you would have just you would have totally just lived with it. The arbitrariness does it just doesn't quite sit right. Right? Like so let's say I was um you can imagine being born on the other side of the world and Okay, so you, maybe you would hear the Beatles then. But what's something very significant? Oh, let's say the Velvet Underground. Pretty important foundational kind of band for me. Something that's like, like, defines me. It defines what I think music and art can be and, 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 and reflects my sort of disposition toward the world. Helps, frankly, helps determine my disposition toward the world. I mean, the Velvet Underground, you know, brought that whole kind of I mean, they, they, they brought the, uh, I don't know, the androgynous, arty sensibility to, to rock and roll um, that or you know, helped to establish that. And yet it could so easily be otherwise. I could, have, I could have been born in Wuhan, China, you know, and I would, some, some other thing would have held that space in my cultural imagination. You know, some other, something that I... Steve McLaughlin have never heard of, you know, or maybe a flip side of, of this unsettling phenomenon, non, uh, is that I can totally imagine being in a record store or a movie store in, in Wuhan, China, and looking around, looking around at the titles and the culture and not being able to pick up on a single reference point. I mean, not knowing the language, but all of this culture would appear to me to be a completely uh, indistinguishable mass. I mean, the, just the, I, 
I guess maybe I'm just uncomfortable with the idea that there are things I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe I'm the one who wants to be, uh, maybe I've taken the platonic fallacy to heart. The, this idea that, that knowledge is the goal of life. Uh, but, but sure, that's an easy thing to imagine. If you could imagine any perfect state, it would, <laughs> omnipotence, you know, it would be an ideal that you would, that one would maybe, maybe, maybe aim towards. As I'm saying those words out loud, that sounds ridiculous. Because you wouldn't want to know everything. You wouldn't want to know uh, every, the color of every pair of socks in your neighbor's sock drawer. You really, I think that there's really probably uh, very little value in that. But where would you draw the line? If you were going to coronate yourself a god, and if you were to, to make yourself omnipotent um, with, a, with a series of rules, <laughs> I don't know, what am I talking about? Uh, you know, like, or let's put it this way. I wish I knew more than I do now. I wish I spoke at least one other language. Okay, that's a good place to start. Well, it would be better to know two other languages, definitely. I think that would be desirable. And, you know, it would be, it would be amazing to, to speak four or five different languages, which is not uncommon. Lots of Europeans speak five languages or, or you know, six, six languages. Um, and you can, it's incredible to hear somebody on the, <laughs> someone who grew up in Europe uh, and, and was able to travel and has a network of friends around, you hear somebody talking on the phone, you know, maybe the phone on the other side is being passed around, they're switching between languages, and it's like the greatest trick. It's the most amazing. It's just, God, I imagine, I know a lot of English words, just that the thought of knowing five times as many words, uh, of course, you're not going to be as fluent in, in five different languages, but, but still, I think you can be, I think you can mean, you can be quite fluent. Uh, you could, you can definitely be fluent in five languages. Okay. Okay. So let's take this further. Would it be desirable to know 10 more languages? Okay, yeah. Okay. Sure. Would it be desirable to know 150 additional languages? To, to speak the, the top 150 languages on earth fluently and have full grasp of the vocabulary and be able to uh, wield the languages in a creative way, full mastery of 150 languages. Well, that, that I mean, no, I think that is not desirable. That's so far over the, that would take, I, really, I, you can only think of it in terms of human limitations. So I'm, you you say you mention a person who knows 150 languages and it brings to mind somebody who a doesn't know 150 languages <laughs> who has memorized some vocabulary and and trick themselves into thinking they can speak 150 languages um so there's that it's just not possible so and also even if it, even if it were you would have to spend so much of your life and time and attention on that task that you I think you would, I think you would, uh, for, you would, you would 
fall into being an uninteresting person. I think I think only only a true boar could know one hundred one hundred and fifty languages. Um, but knowing five languages would be incredible. Oh my god! <sighs> to be able to read newspapers, <laughs> unfiltered, you know, op-eds in multiple languages, that would be so great. But alas, alas, I don't have it, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it. I'm sure. Maybe someday, maybe someday I'll <laughs> spend a summer in Montreal and brush up on my friends and my French. But that arbitrariness, though, that arbitrariness, it bugs me. Like I think, here's what my mind goes to the kinds of cultural references that show up really early in our culture, the references that show up in cartoons and kids' culture. So something like the Mona Lisa, that would be, I think that's fair to say, one of the most referenced, parodied images in, in our culture. And you see, I, there were probably Mona Lisa references in Muppet Babies, uh, just to give a for instance, uh, which which is aging me rather specifically. What would be another one? Oh, uh, American Gothic. Uh, sticking with paintings, American Gothic is just a, is a template. It's a meme that is out there in the culture, and it's just there probably are lots of things that are the equivalent to American Gothic in Chinese culture, uh, which which I, I I do not and and never will have any kind of awareness of or or fluency in. And, you know, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm jealous because I love, because I love recognition, (laughs) because because I love idioms and, and secret codes and, and hidden meanings. (laughs) Um, With American Gothic, though, I wonder if that, if that relevance is fading. I mean, American Gothic, American Gothic in the 80s and 90s, I, I think I think that it may have just been referenced to death. I think it may have just been referenced so many times that it became, became cringy because it was so unoriginal. If you reference American Gothic, you are putting yourself in this long line of, at this point, kind of mindless parodies. And of course, you do see, you see references to American Gothic in contemporary culture. It's it is it's one of the most famous paintings in history. Maybe not in history. It's only been around for less than 100 years. Um, but I do, I think that if I, were an, an, if I were a cultural relevance investor, I think I would go short on American Gothic. I would, I would, uh, I would take a short position on that one because it, it, it does seem to be fading. It seems like it, had its, it may have had its moment. Um, I would be fully, I would be completely happy to be wrong. Uh, it is a great painting. It is a great painting. I, I've seen that one up close. And I, I've seen the Mona Lisa up close too, which is an experience that I, I recommend. I, sometimes I'll talk to someone who is going to France for some reason and they'll say like, uh, I probably won't even go see the Mona Lisa because it's just, look, everybody's seen it. I've been to museums before. Who cares? Even art, even art people may end up saying this because, because there's a, I think there's a temptation to not do the most obvious, 
touristy thing. But I thought it was, I thought it was uh, very much worthwhile seeing the Mona Lisa, really for the for the experience of. Okay, here's how I would put it. Seeing the Mona Lisa was the first time that looking at a painting in a museum felt like being at a rock concert. It it really did. This whole room was full of tourists, shoulder to shoulder. People were holding up their phones, taking pictures, taking videos. Um, everyone wanted to have a turn going up and seeing this painting up close. And so it was a churn and and it was loud and people are talking and and there were a lot there's a lot of photos being taken and you realize you know you know all of those photos are terrible the photos are really just of a crowd of people uh with a painting in the distance so you get into this room and it's the thing that strikes you is that it's so contrary to the usual expected museum experience museums tend to be quiet uh places of reflection, a bit like libraries. Uh, they're quiet places, but Mona Lisa is not quiet. And so you shoulder, you, you elbow your way through this crowd and you get up to the front and you get your, you know, you get your 45 seconds up close with this painting, which is of course behind glass and there's a barrier. So it's a few feet away, but Turns out, it's an amazing painting. It's a real great. It's a total standout, A+. Plus. Um, I mean, you got to hand it to Leonardo da Vinci. Amazing painting. Uh, <laughs> the kind of painting that feels like it was discovered and not created. That it must have always been out there in the ether. And, he, and I know that that's bullshit, but it's just something once makes you want to say that. <laughs> Uh, when you've been looking at the Mona Lisa for your entire life. God, but yes, seeing the Mona Lisa, uh, I, I would, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't recommend traveling to France, I guess, for, for environmental reasons at this point in my life. So maybe I wouldn't recommend seeing the Mona Lisa. But if you are in Paris, that that that, that is something, that is something to see. Um, so if I were, if I were a cultural relevance investor if you could if you could somehow financialize cultural relevance which you know sounds like such an awful thing uh, if i were taking a position on the mona lisa i would definitely go long i would uh, well as long as as long as human civilization is around i'm not i'm not exactly sure i would go long on human civilization <laughs> but the mona lisa as long as we're around we western people i i guess um, actually, you know what, that, that's the, that's the thing that feels really wrong about this. Um, well, the, first of all, every time I'm in a museum looking at paintings, I'm thinking, look, these things, these were all created for the amusement of some, you know, idle rich guy or, or worse, some rich industrialist. Uh, if, if you're wealthy, it's better to be idle, I would say, than to, than to go out and rape the earth. But art does become, you know, really liking something like the Mona Lisa begins to feel a little bit, I don't know, fascistic, a little bit like you're buying into this narrative of Western culture, if you like 
if you if you appreciate the Mona Lisa or Shakespeare, um, which I, I think I wouldn't have been self-conscious about, except that the, the this world of Proud Boys and Gavin McInnes have risen. And now here's the crazy thing. Those people, those Western chauvinists, from what I can tell, those those Proud Boys and those... The people I'm talking about are Nazi... It's, a, it's similar to a kind of... It's a it's a you know hard hardcore nationalist right wing ideology. Uh, it's not a quite. They 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 will take great pains to tell you that they're not Nazis. <laughs> they will love to tell you about how they're not racist. They just think that Western culture is amazing. They just think that Western culture is like the pinnacle of, you know, of of what humans have accomplished, and that we are inherently superior than every other, <laughs> you know, race, creed, and ethnicity. We don't care about race. The thing is, it's just that Western people are better than black people. I'm parodying, I'm, I am like summarizing their position. Uh, these guys are, are horrible. So when I, when I say something nice about the Mona Lisa, I almost feel like I'm playing into this, you know, pro-Western kind of narrative, um, which on one hand is ridiculous, with respect to the Proud Boys, because those guys don't give a shit about the Mona Lisa. I mean, they they don't, they're not arty people. These are not like, <laughs> these are people who are very proud of being from the, the West, uh, very proud of the scientific and, uh, and artistic, <laughs> in theory, pr- proud of the scientific and artistic accomplishments of Western culture, and maybe industrial comp- accomplishments. Maybe it's just the the, the size and voraciousness of Western culture that they that they really like, um, but but things like the Mona Lisa, you know, are are used in these in these sorts of ways. I, I don't I don't recall if Hitler is on the record about the Mona Lisa in particular, um, but the way that the, the, the Nazis use that kind of those classical ideals and and um, masterful execution in, in artwork. Um, used those things as, you know, for for nefarious uh, political purposes, and you know, I f- just feel I. It's hard to <laughs> it's hard to reckon with your feelings on this. Like I feel in a way that I've been sold a bill of goods with this, with the the, the celebrations of the greatness of Western culture. If you think of the narrative, you know, from the Greeks to the some other stuff happened Romans and then uh, and then there were dark ages eventually and the renaissance happened um, but this trajectory and then that went to the enlightenment and uh, women's suffrage and we're just on this we're riding this upward curve and one of the greatest hits along the way was the Mona Lisa um, I feel like I've been sold a bill of goods in that that narrative is is exactly what <laughs> you know, yeah literally was used to um, emphatically, uh, to to justify the atrocities of the British Empire, I mean the British really mastered that. The British really went all in on using culture, uh, and you know culture that I, I like and appreciate even now, uh, to maybe not justify, but maybe but but help the. It was a spoonful of Shakespeare is like the spoonful of sugar that helped the colonial genocide go down. And it's tough because sugar is good, 
and I'm going to have a reaction to sugar. But Shakespeare is fucking amazing. I mean, Shakespeare is great. And so I've, I live in this world where, this, yeah, the thing that you love, and the other thing is that Shakespeare has whatever he, she, uh, or, or, or they, meaning a group of people, uh, whatever Shakespeare, whoever wrote the Shakespeare plays, uh, uh, you know, they, they are not responsible directly. You know, they're not, that person is not responsible for the colonial, the atrocities of the colonial British empire. I mean, they were playing into maybe, I don't know, some excesses of their, their day. And look, the point is these things, these cultural artifacts get used in unintended ways centuries later and, and the attribution or, or just deciding what to affiliate yourself with becomes difficult. And so I don't know. I don't exactly know. Maybe I should take a shorter position on Shakespeare. And so the question, the question arises, what is worth defending? What is worth, or, or should we defend this stuff at all? Or, or does it even matter? I, clearly, my opinion on this is not going to affect the long-term popularity of the Mona Lisa or Macbeth. It's the arbitrariness of it that I can't quite shake. I guess it's the arbitrariness of being a person. I mean, it's like the arbitrariness of a friendship, which I also can't quite shake. Mm. Yeah, I think we're just stuck, you and me both. I think we're just stuck without the answers. So on that note, I can hear my daughter fussing downstairs. I think it's time to make her some breakfast and get this day started. Okay. Thank you so much for being with me. Today is the 5th of February, 2020. And uh, I'm Steve McLaughlin. You've been listening to the Steve McLaughlin Radio Hour. Later.